You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So John Calvin begins his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, like this. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. So what is Calvin saying here? What he's saying is that true wisdom is accurate knowledge of God and ourselves. If you want to be truly wise, that you will have a deep understanding of who you are, coupled with a deep understanding of who God is. And then Calvin kind of opens up this dilemma by saying that the two are really joined together in a way that makes it really hard to discern where should you begin. Like if true knowledge is both knowledge of self and knowledge of God, where are you supposed to start? Because you can't know God without knowing yourself, and you can't know yourself without knowing God. So what are you supposed to do about this dilemma? And so he goes on in chapter 1 to talk about how if we were to accurately take stock of ourselves, meaning if you did a period of introspection and you looked at yourself, at humanity, you would come away with um, an understanding of just how uh, wonderful and complex um, humans are, all the good, all the beautiful. Uh, at, but at the same time, you would also be uh, struck with how evil we are. You would see that there's evil both around us and in us, leaving you completely dissatisfied. And in that dissatisfaction, you would then go look for God and you would find him. But the problem, Calvin says, is that we don't do that. We don't actually see ourselves accurately because uh, one of the problems of sin is that we overestimate ourselves. We overvalue ourselves. And what we do is we create our own vision of what is good, true, and beautiful. In other words, we make our own standards. And then we never come to that place of holy dissatisfaction. He has this great analogy. He says, if you were to only show a person black objects, then you, would, you could take a, a, a dirty white object and it would look clean because of the perception of only ever seeing black. And so then, how does anyone ever come to an accurate knowledge of themselves? Calvin says this, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. In other words, we'll never truly and fully know ourselves unless we meet God face to face. And then in seeing him with that true light, we can then see ourselves. This morning, as we continue in our series in Exodus, going chapter by chapter through the book... Uh, we've called this series Deliverance and Devotion, which is really a way to summarize the whole book, that God delivers us, but he also uh, wants us to be devoted to him. And we come to chapter 19, and in Exodus 19, Israel meets God face to face. In fact, you could summarize the book of Exodus like this, that Exodus is about the God who makes himself known, first to Moses, 
then to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And now through the end of the book, uh, he is going to introduce himself to the Israelites. Exodus 19 marks a new movement in the book. They have now arrived at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And it's here that God will begin to unfold what life will look like as the people of God. He begins to lay out the implications of their identity. If they really are going to be the people of God, that comes with certain requirements, that comes with certain implications. He's going to establish the commitments that will come with the covenant. He's going to make known the requirements of the redeemed. And as we work our way through Exodus 19, we're going to see three truths emerge. Three truths that the Israelites need to learn. But I would also argue today that there are three truths that are still relevant and required for us today as the people of God. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you your three um, headings today so you know where we're going. So the first truth we need to learn is this. Grace motivates obedience. Grace motivates obedience. God's people are redeemed by grace. And it's that same grace that must drive and motivate obedience. Second, obedience requires intentionality. As God's people seek to obey his word, we need to understand it. We need to align the desires of our hearts with it. And then we need to put it into action. And that won't happen without intentionality, being proactive. So third, glory demands seriousness. The holiness and glory of God should compel us to take God seriously and never presume upon his grace. So as we walk through this chapter, we're going to see these three truths. Grace motivates our obedience. That's the why. The what. Obedience requires intentionality. And third, glory demands seriousness. So let's begin in verse 1 to see how grace motivates obedience. Here again, the word of the Lord. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Okay, so as is very often the case, the chapter opens up with some calendaring and some geography to help provide context. This is often the stuff we just skip right over because we're like, Rephidim, I don't know where that is. Uh, Third new moon, I have no idea what that means. And we just skip right over it. But there's a lot of good context here. And when you consider the fact now, it is the first day of a third lunar month. So lunar months have about 28 or 29 days, and it's the beginning of that. So it's got, they've gone through two full lunar months. When you consider the fact that the Israelites left Egypt in the middle of that first lunar month on the night of the Passover, if you do all the math, it's about 50 days. So get that in your mind. It's been about 50 days since Passover when they left Egypt. Now here's why that's important. In Exodus 19, Moses is going to make... Uh, the first three of seven um, trips up the mountain. So from Exodus 19 through the end of the book, Moses is going to go up the mountain of God seven times. And we're going to get three of those seven right here um, in, this t- in this chapter as the Mosaic Covenant is established. Okay. Now Passover, if you remember, uh, marks 
the moment when redemption was accomplished. Remember, it's the final plague. It's when um, uh, uh, Pharaoh decides to finally um, let the people go after the death of the firstborn son. So their redemption, their release from bondage and slavery begins at Passover. And now, 50 days later, we have redemption applied. So they're redeemed, it's accomplished in the Passover. And now as God establishes his covenant and teaches them how to live, he's applying that redemption. And the Passover, what happens? Well, the people take shelter under the blood of the lamb so that death would pass over them. Death is coming It's coming for everyone and only those who take shelter under the blood of the lamb will be able to escape the coming judgment. The reason the Israelites escaped judgment is because they they took shelter under the lamb who was slain in their place. Death was coming to every home in Egypt and either the firstborn son died or a lamb died in their place. Now, 50 days later, This blood-bought people of God are learning what it means to live as the redeemed as they receive God's law. Now later in Leviticus, uh, this this festival, this this, uh, period of, of giving of the law is going to be memorialized in the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. If you're a Christian and been following Christ, some of these words are starting to to, uh, uh, ring some bells here. Pentecost is that time when you remember and celebrate God's gracious provision of the law. Now, I want you to think about this connection to our story in Christ. The Passover is a placeholder for the cross. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins in our place so that Death would pass over all who take shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ, who Paul calls our Passover lamb. And then as the New Testament unfolds, 50 days later, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, at this point, right, Jesus has been crucified, he has, been, he has risen, he spent 40 days appearing to the disciples, confirming his resurrection, teaching them all that they will need to follow him as they go and make disciples. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's left the disciples with the great commission, and then he tells them to do what? To wait until they receive the gift and power of the Holy Spirit. And then 10 days later, after the Passover, the Spirit came into the hearts of the disciples to empower them for gospel mission and gospel living. In other words, the Spirit's ministry of sanctification begins at Pentecost as grace begins to change them from the inside out so that they can live out the commands and ethics of the law of Christ. On the cross, our redemption is accomplished. At Pentecost, in the giving of the Spirit, redemption is applied. You see these connections between our story and the Exodus story. They're they're too precise to just be merely coincidental. It's almost as if someone has planned it this way. When we began our series in Exodus, I told you that it is a prototype of salvation. So the degree in which you see how God is uh, uh, beginning to unfold his plan of redemption in Exodus, it will point you towards Jesus and how he accomplishes our salvation. 
That's the calendaring aspect. Now let's look at uh, geography. So um, they leave Rephidim and they come to Mount Sinai. Rephidim was where they encountered um, Amalek and had that, uh, that battle there. Um, and, and then uh, the, the next chapter, you see them um, without water. And if you remember, that's that scene where Moses um, strikes the rock and then water begins to flow. Well, that rock is called Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. So I want you to picture here, they have come to Sinai before. It has become the place of life for them. They have seen water just open up from the base of this mountain so that they can live. It's been their source of water for the last few days. And now they come to Sinai and they set up camp. At this point now, where they have encamped, they will stay here for nearly a year. Israel will be here for the next 10 months and 19 days to be exact. Also, it's worth noting that Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai um, is particularly significant for Moses. He has been here before. This is the place where Moses met the Lord in the burning bush. And as God began to unfold, uh, unfold his plan to Moses, you remember Mez- Moses was hesitant, wasn't he? He was doubtful. He was skeptic that he would be able to, uh, to be uh, this uh, mediator, redeemer for uh, the people of God. And into his doubts, into his insecurities, the Lord said this, But I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see what's going on? The sign he gives him, the reason you'll know that, that, that I am who I, who I am, that I will do what I say what I will do, is that there's going to come a day when you deliver the people and you'll bring them right back here. Moses has experienced up and downs. There's been days of blessing, days of difficulty, and now God brings Moses right back to the place where he first met him. And he makes good on all the promises to bring the people of God right back to where it all began. And as God is going to, uh, to give him further instructions, he's going to be able to look back on the past faithfulness of God to propel him forward. You see, Sinai was always God's intended destination. It was the first point he was bringing them to on their journey. So they didn't get lost and just wander. It's not like they didn't know the way to the promised land. Sinai was intentional. It's also worth noting, if you're not familiar with geography over there, that Sinai is not on the way to the promised land. In fact, geographically speaking, it is further away from the promised land than Egypt. They were closer to the promised land in Egypt than they are right now. So just imagine if you're the people of God. They've told you, Moses came and said, listen. God is going to deliver us and take us to this promised land. This place is awesome. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And as they start making their way there, they're going, wait, listen, I, I know I'm just like a lowly uh, slave, but this isn't the way. Like, this is not the promised land. We're in the desert. There's no food out here. There's no water out here. Why are we here? This land is nothing like what you promised. The only reason that they're even able to survive is because God has miraculously been providing bread from heaven and quail and water from a rock. It's nothing like the promised land. And the people of God have been led into the wilderness to a remote place. Why? In order that God would be their singular focus. 
in the land of nothing when God shows up. He's all that you can see. He wants their attention. He wants to meet them face to face that they might know him, believe him, and live for him. Verse 3, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So in this section, we see Moses make his first ascent up the mountain of God. And God gives him a message to deliver to the people. And if I could summarize it in three words, it would be this. Grace motivates obedience. The order here is critically important because the grace of God always precedes or comes before the law of God. One of the great misconceptions, as a pastor I hear this all the time, It's an ill-conceived reduction of the Old Testament where we go, look, the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament is all about grace as if there's no such thing as grace in the Old Testament. And that could not be further from the truth. I hope you realize so far as we've walked our way through um, Exodus, we have gone 18 chapters without a single law. Everything about Exodus 1 through 18 has all been about God's gracious initiative to save the people of God. God didn't come to the Israelites in Egypt and say, listen, I've been looking around. You seem like great people. I'd love for you to be my people, but we have to have kind of like a trial run. So I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you three, four months to see how you do with it. And if you guys pass the test, I'll crush Pharaoh and deliver you out of slavery. Is that how it went? No, he doesn't say, here's my laws and my ways. Prove that you're worthy of my grace. He doesn't say, demonstrate that you have the ability to live out my law. No, that's not what he did. He comes and initiates salvation and redemption one of the evils of slavery is that your whole life you're told that your value and your worth is only in what you can produce the value of a slave goes up if you can produce how many bricks you can make determined your worth and value but that's not how god works and therefore that's not how grace works He doesn't come prove your worth and value to me and then I'll save you. He comes to them and says, you are my treasured possession. You are my people. He decided to make them his people and so he reaches out and saves them. Now you may be asking, so if it's not on their their production value or their ability to carry out the law, why does God choose Israel? Like why them? I'm glad you asked that question. The Bible tells us the answer. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now he's going to give a reason why he didn't choose them. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of all people. But here it is. Why does God choose them? It is because the Lord loves you. 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, he says it's not because you were great. It's not even that you were small. Elsewhere, later in Deuteronomy, he's going to say it's not even that you guys were righteous. It's not like you guys were, were killing it when it comes to following the Lord. No, he says, I simply chose you because I decided to love you. That's it. Reasons just that are in the mind and will of God, he decided to set his love on them. He decided to make this no-name people his treasured possession. In other words, the only reason that you can state of why God chooses anyone is because of love. That's it. He chose to redeem them. And now they are to live as the redeemed. And so what does he say? He says, never, ever forget what I did to the Egyptians. You saw it with your own eyes. Remember it. Talk about it. Sing about it. Remember, we, he, he, he uh, gave them the feast of the Passover to celebrate every single year. What does Passover do? It just rehearses the story of redemption. Because we're a people prone to forget, he says, we're going we're gonna to create this yearly remembrance. Talk about it. Exodus 15 is a song. Why? It sings about the redemption. He wants it in every single home so that we never, ever forget it. So that from generation to generation, you remember that I am your redeemer. 18 chapters of grace and redemption before we ever get a single law. And the order is so important. We are given God's grace first. And then that grace, through faith, should compel us to live in obedience to his commands. And then he gives them a beautiful picture. He says, I rescued you like an eagle swooping down and lifting you away from danger. Anybody thinking about Lord of the Rings right now? Okay, good. My fellow nerds. You remember that scene in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is trapped at the Tower of Orthanc and Isengard? Right? He has no way out. And then what? One of the great eagles swoops down and saves him. At the end, when the one ring is destroyed, Fram and so, uh, Fram, Sam and Frodo are about to get melted in the fires of Mordor. What happens? The great eagles swoop down and deliver them out. Tolkien is making this connection with several passages of Scripture that compare God's redemption to the rescue of eagles. God is about to unfold for them. In the coming chapters, the rest of the book of Exodus, the requirements of obedience. And he's telling them, never forget what motivates it. Never forget what, what should compel you to live for God is his grace. The redeemed must learn to obey the redeemer and their motivation for doing so is grace. So when you find yourself lacking motivation, when you find yourself wondering, what, like, why would I give up all of this to live for God? Why would I deny immediate gratification? This is meant to teach you to remember and reflect on the grace of God. By his grace, God reaches out to save us. And it's those whom he saved that he continues to be gracious as he reveals his law. We often pit law and grace against one another. And I think that's an unfair fight. I think God is gracious to redeem. I think he's also gracious to give us his law, to teach us how to live. He doesn't make us guess. He teaches us how to live in a way that will please him. 
Remember in Exodus 6, he tells his people, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He is not giving them demands in order to enter into relationship with him. Why? Because they're already his people. He's told them in Exodus 6, you are my people. Exodus 19 does not make them his people. They are already his people. And now he's saying because of the identity that you already have, that I've already given you, here's what it looks like to live out that identity. The covenant here is given to bring clarity to the requirements of obedience so that they may enjoy the benefits and privileges of being God's people. He goes on to tell them that if they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they're going to need to know what that actually means. And that's why he gives them the law. One of the first markers of God's people is that they become a people who love God's word. Over the next 20 chapters, God is going to give them his word. And the question will be, will they be a people who love and receive his word? In the Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther said this, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, God loves us in our state of unloveliness. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ doesn't die for us once we prove ourselves lovely. He dies for us in our state of unloveliness and then does what? Makes us lovely. And he uses his law to do that. When God comes to us, he finds us languishing in the filth of our sin. And by his grace, he decides to forgive us, rescue us, cleanse us, and make us holy. That's why Samuel Crossman expressed this idea beautifully in his hymn when he writes, Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. What makes us lovely? When God finds us in our unloveliness and loves us, and that love begins to change us. Friends, this is the gospel. Love to the loveless shown, grace extended to us, rescue and redemption. And then continual grace as he teaches us how to live in such a way as to be pleasing to him. To learn what it means to thrive as our humanity is being restored in us. That we might become a royal priesthood and a holy nation. In the coming weeks, God will continue to unfold his law. He will require obedience. But before he does, he wants his people to know that the motivation of legalism will suffocate you. The motivation of fear will paralyze you. The only motivation that will lead to genuine, real life change is the motivation of grace. That's our first truth this morning. Grace motivates obedience. Now let's look at verse 7 to see our second point, that obedience requires intentionality. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And the, Lord answered, and the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So if you're following in the story, Moses comes back down the mountain and he set before them all the words of the Lord, everything that he had just heard. And he reminded them of their redemption and their need to, their, uh, their need to live as the redeemed. And what do the people do? They respond by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's like a wedding. You ever been to a wedding, right? Vows are exchanged, and what do the people do? 
after a vows exchange. They said, we do, I do, right? They're, 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 they're expressing their commitment to live out as faithfully as possible to those vows. That's what happens here. Continuing in verse 8, Moses then reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and that you may also, and may also believe you forever. Okay, so now Moses makes his second trip up the mountain to relay the words of the people to the Lord. Now, it's not that God doesn't know. It's not that God is like up on the mountain be like, I can't see them or hear them. He knows what they've said. But Moses is fulfilling this role, this role as a mediator, this go-between between the people of God and the Lord. And now the Lord gives specific instructions of what is going to happen in the coming day. So he's told them, um, remember my redemption. Remember that grace must be what motivates you. And now get ready because on the third day, I am going to meet my people face to face. Remember Calvin saying that's what really changes people when you meet God face to face. So that's what's about to happen. And so he says, I'm coming to meet you. And I want them to hear my voice when I speak to you, Moses, for a couple reasons. One, so that they, that they see who I am. And second, so that you are validated as their leader. Because up until this point, I'm sure they, 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 they have some sort of trust in Moses. But eventually, you know, this guy goes up on the mountain. He's there for a while. He comes back down. And he's like, hey, God said this. He wants them to go, no, no, God really is speaking to them. He wants the people to uh, trust Moses in his leadership. He's chosen Moses and said, listen, I've chosen Moses to lead you. Now listen to him. This reminds me of the transfiguration of Jesus. You remember that moment? Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He brings um, his, his inner uh, uh, circle, Peter, James, and John. And in that moment, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the inherent glory of Christ, which has been kind of shrouded uh, in, his, in his earthly ministry, is revealed. And they see the glory of Jesus. And in that moment, the heavens open up and the Lord speaks. This is one of three times in the New Testament when you hear God audibly speak. And what does he say? He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's validating his son's ministry into what will become the leaders of the church. Verse 9, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. All right, we'll unpack all that. So um, God gives specific instructions for the people to follow. And I want you to know these aren't arbitrary instructions and they need to be followed with intentionality. The people, if you remember, they've expressed their intentions to obey the Lord. They said, all the Lord has said, we will do. 
Now they need to put those intentions into actions. And so first, they were instructed to wash their garments. Now, why would they do that? Well, in the Bible, clothes are often used as symbols of the nature and intentions of the wearer. Think about a bride. What does she wear? A wedding dress. Why? It's saying something. It's not something you just like wear on a Tuesday night. It's saying, I am the bride. I intend to be married to this man. We, it, it, there's all sorts of, of, of clothing in our culture today that expresses something. And that's exactly what's going on here. In like manner, the Israelites were, were to spend the next few days preparing their minds and their hearts to meet the Lord. They needed to consider their sin. They needed to come with a repentant heart. They were to consider the commitment that they're making to the Lord. They were to reflect on what it will actually look like for them to pursue a life of holiness. And after that kind of internal preparation, the clean clothes were an outward expression of that inward reality. Second, they were to set limits for where they could stand as they approached the Lord. Now, if you were following in the text, they were to take these boundaries seriously. Why? Because the consequence for overstepping that boundary was what? Death. Man or beast. If you go across that line, you will die. I mean, imagine the parents, right? Kids just running loose. Like you have to impress upon them, do not cross this line. It is critically important you do not cross this line and go up the mountain. Yet the shepherds had to keep the livestock back. Man or beast, you crossed the line and you were going to be put to death. And Moses tells them on the third day, there will be a trumpet blast, which was an invitation signaling the time for the people to come up to the mountain, not going past that boundary, right? To come meet the Lord face to face. Everything about this scene was meant to teach the people about the holiness of God. If you think about all the cultures around them, these pagan cultures with idols made by hands, I mean, you could literally pick up your gods and play with them. And he's saying, God is not like that. He's not, he's not a God you can handle. He's not a God you can control. Consider for a moment the president of the United States. Are you allowed to approach him on your own terms? Like, can you just waltz into the White House, walk into the Oval Office, pat him on the back, sit down and kick your feet up on the coffee table? No, you can't do that. Why? Because you just can't, like, you can't just approach him on your terms. You have to be invited. And whatever rules are given you, you had better follow them. Or you're going to be handcuffed, go into some room, and you'll never be seen or heard from again. If interactions with POTUS require an invitation and has certain boundaries, then how much more with the God of the universe? And then finally, in preparation to meet the Lord, the people were to refrain from sexual intimacy. Now I want to say, this in no way hints at sinfulness between um, a husband and a wife. This prohibition was given in order to have a period of time where the people would have a singular devotion, where they would have all of their focus on that inward consecration and preparation that was supposed to be going on in order to meet the Lord. J. Alec Matir writes this, The Word of God is, is designed to be a life, 
changing. And as the Bible teaches us, nothing is truly known until it permeates from the mind to the heart and will. Understood in thought, loved in heart, and obeyed in will. Everything about this section is meant to teach the people that God's word is to be obeyed all the way, right away, in a happy way. They are to take God seriously and they are to put his word into action. They were to be intentional with their obedience to ensure that God's word began to permeate the mind, the heart, and the will. Which means they needed to understand all of it. As, God, as Moses gave them the word of God, they needed to understand it. They needed to actually think about what do these words actually mean. Like when we read our Bibles, sometimes we read it and we're like, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I read my Bible. No, no. You're supposed to slow down and think, what do these words actually mean? They have meaning. What do they mean? And then we're to believe them and go, okay, I trust God at his word. I need to align my desires and my will with the word of God. And then I need to do the hard work of putting it into action, which means some things in your life might actually have to change. Friends, do you take God at his word? Do you strive to obey his word with intentionality? Do you spend the necessary time considering what God's word actually says so that you can understand it? Do you allow it to shape your desires? To change how you feel about things? Do you allow God's word to become the standard of what you define as good, true, and beautiful? Do you strive to put God's word into action in the everyday stuff of life? Exodus 19 teaches us that God's grace motivates our obedience. It also teaches us that obedience requires intentionality. Our third and final point, glory demands seriousness. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So let's just stop here for a moment. When we read these words out loud in this climate controlled boys and girls club gym, I think something is lost. Right? I mean, just imagine the scene. You've spent the last few days preparing your heart, considering what it means to interact and meet God face to face. It's likely there's a mix of excitement and trepidation, anticipation and fear, and then it begins. Maybe off in the distance you hear this low rolling thunder, some lightning flashing across the sky, but then it starts to get louder and closer. I mean, even as it is right now, if there is a close lightning strike, and that thunder cracks, like it, it, it'll startle you, right? A thick cloud descends on the mountain, bringing with it a shroud of darkness. And then from somewhere in the heavens, high in the sky, trumpet blasts begin to sound, inviting you, signaling you to come meet the Lord. It says that the people tremble as the mountain began 
to quake. And then the Lord descends in a holy fire and smoke begins to rise in the air. The scene is multi-sensory, right? Because you can see it. You can hear it. You can smell the smoke. You can taste the ash as things are burning all around you. You taste and feel and see and smell and hear the glory of the Lord as he comes down the mountain. Everything about the scene is meant to impress upon you the glory of the Lord. I mean, if you hear this, if you read this and go, oh, cool, then you haven't grasped it. Everything about this is meant for you to go, how awesome, how completely other than. He is unrivaled in power, unmatched in holiness. And you should walk away from this scene going, this is not a God that you take lightly. Verse 19, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So Moses makes his third trip up the mountain. And the Lord says to Moses, hey, you need to go back down. You need to go back down and warn the people again. Remind them of the seriousness of the boundaries. They needed to be reminded not to presume upon the Lord and test the boundaries. To satisfy their curiosity. To get too close and see what was going on up the mountain. So I want you to imagine for a moment, right? That after a while, maybe some of the the, the shock and awe of the situation has passed. Moses goes up to the mountain and you start to wonder... Is God really serious about that whole thing about staying back? Like maybe I can just get a better view. What, he's not really going to kill me. He's not really going to put me to death. I mean, I can go a little bit further. I can go a little bit closer, right? Presuming upon the Lord, not taking God seriously. So Moses, so God tells Moses, you had better go back down. Like the people are getting stirred and they're, and they're going to want to push in, uh, on those boundaries because it's just human nature to not think about the glory and holiness and seriousness of God. It's like that ancient lie. Did God actually say? Does he really mean what he says he means? I find it so interesting that the Lord tells Moses not just to remind the people, but also to remind the priests that they too needed to stay back. I mean, if you're a priest, aren't you thinking, wait a minute, I'm a priest. I, like, like I'm going to be, I'm employed in God's service. Surely I can, there's an exception for me, right? I'm privileged. I have status. But their status and office as priests do not give them special privilege when it comes to the word of God. Their service to the Lord does not give them an exemption from obedience. Pastors, elders, this is a good word for us to remember. 
Friends, this final scene in Exodus 19 is meant to press upon us this third truth. The glory of God demands seriousness. Seriousness. We are not to presume upon the Lord's grace. God is gracious. He's the very definition of grace. But you can never let your desire and love for grace eclipse the holiness of God. They go hand in hand. God is warning his people that presumption and glibness is dangerous, even fatal. Raise your hand if you use the word glib this week. Okay, just me. It's one of those words that is falling out of trend. The cool kids aren't using it anymore. But I think it's helpful here. What does it mean? It means unconstrained, unthoughtful, and superficial. And friends, this is the opposite of how we're to approach God. We are never to just go, hey, no boundaries, unthoughtful, like I can, like I can control God and do whatever I want. Friends, our sinfulness creates a barrier to a holy God. And we, we cannot simply pretend like it doesn't exist. Often, we glibly interact with God. This is how it often goes. We're, we're contemplating a sinful action, right? We're like being, we're, like, we're, we're, we're wrestling. We're in that moment where we're like, should I sin? Should I not sin? Should I do this? Should I uh, go for this instant uh, moment of gratification? Should I lie here? Should I cheat here? Should I do this or that? And we start to think, listen, I can sin. I can get what I want. And God's gonna forgive me. Why? He's so gracious. He will forgive me. And listen, while God's grace is uh, incredible and it does cover our sin, even your intentional, willful sin, we should never abuse grace and presume upon it. Why? Because it opens a door for recklessness and apostasy. It will begin to slowly calcify and harden your heart and lead you on a road full of foolishness, misery, and the Bible says even death. See, the reality is the more you understand God's grace and the holiness of God, the more you will be compelled to resist that temptation and pursue holiness. Friends, everything about this scene is meant to open our eyes, open our ears to the glory of God, to impress upon us that God takes obedience seriously. God takes sin seriously. As you think about the warning here, and maybe your mind is going to the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. How you view the warnings of God says a lot about what you really believe about his word. What you really believe about him and the seriousness and the consequences of sin. Friends, grace motivates obedience. Obedience requires intentionality and glory demands seriousness. And all of this is pointing to our need for a mediator. Just like the people could not themselves go up to God, but needed a mediator, needed a Moses to go between them. Moses had to ascend on the people's behalf. Even Moses himself, later in his life, recognized his own limitations as a mediator. And the book of Deuteronomy talks about how he was longing for and looking forward to the one who could do a better job than him. One who could not only go between the people, go between uh, uh, God and the people, but also bring his people to God. 
That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, Jesus is a, the truer and greater mediator. Why? Because he offered his life as a perfect substitute, a ransom for all. You remember when Jesus was crucified, another mountain went dark. There was darkness that covered the mountain. You remember when um, Jesus died that the mountain trembled and quaked as the sin of the world was put upon him. And when he defeated death by his death and championed life by his resurrected life, he became the ladder that connects heaven and earth. He became the mediator who could not only go to God, but also come and get us and bring us back to him. So seven mile, let the grace of Christ motivate and drive your obedience. Strive to understand his word so that you can believe it, align your desires with it, and live it out. And remember, presumption is dangerous. It will get you killed. So treat God with the dignity and respect he deserves.